Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike, and I am filling in today for Bob. Unfortunately, he came down with a cold, and his voice isn't quite up to par yet. So I am filling in for today's podcast with Dr. Abbasi. Dr. Abbasi is a two-time guest. This will be his third time. He is a board-certified neurological surgeon, and Dr. Abbasi is one of the nation's leading spine surgeons. He specializes in minimal invasive spine surgeries. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how COVID can affect your back pain, as well as various types of spine surgeries. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Abbasi. So welcome, Dr. Abbasi, back to the program. Uh, it's a pleasure to be there. Uh, I am filling in for Bob today. For those of you that don't know, he is a little under the weather. But this first video, we are going to talk about back pain and how it can relate to COVID-19. So the first question I have here is a few months ago, news broke out that comedian Ellen DeGeneres had some back pain while she had COVID. So my question to you, Dr. Bossi, is when did you first start noticing a relationship between COVID and back pain? Well, uh, regarding the connection between uh, COVID and back pain, you have to go a little back, think about the overall relationship between any kind of viral infection or even any kind of general inflammation in our body and how our body deals with that. During any general inflammation and a viral infection is a general reaction of our body to a viral element. There are certain uh, uh, substances are produced in our body that actually are there to help our immune system to do a better job. Most of that um, are practically signals that our immune system communicates with cells that are going to literally attack the a virus or a bacteria. Some of them are the interleukins and anybody who had a, like a cold knows how you feel. You have muscle ache, you have your joints don't feel the same. You're just down. Your body wants to, you to relax, don't do anything excessive. It wanna concentrate and fight a, like a virus or a bacteria inside of you. So we know for a long time that this general reaction and a part of that is your temperature goes up. Part of that is that you're just too tired to do things is your body trying to adjust to fight the inflammation in your body. And COVID is no different. It's a viral reaction of our body that practically it is a um, upscale and extra strong cold. That's what COVID is. As a matter of fact, it's, all, all these uh, viruses are a group of uh, 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 respiratory viruses, same as cold, that uh, they act in a certain way. And the reason that we cannot have the one single vaccine against that is because they mutate a lot. So as long as humanity has existed, this kind of viruses have existed and our body always deal with that the same way. It try to slow us down, it tried to let us get rest, and it tried to fight the infection in certain mechanisms. Part of that certain mechanism is that, uh, that all our tissue becomes painful, including our spine, including our muscle, including our joint. Now imagine if you have already some problem in your spine or in your joint, already there is a, a, something not optimal there, it's easy to understand that any viral reaction, any 
immune reaction going to aggravate that. So I'm not surprised. I have myself back pain and I know that when I have a cold, my back pain is always going to get worse. So it's a natural reaction of our body, how it attacked the virus. All right. Well, that's very fascinating. So how does like back pain present itself with COVID? Is it different than your typical back pain or is it something you can kind of distinguish easily? Um, I would go back as well to answer that question a little about that COVID or any viral reaction, it aggravates symptoms you have. Part of that is a general malaise, like muscle ache that you have everywhere, including your back. But part of that is like, if you had mostly back pain with certain position, that is going to be aggravated. If you had leg pain in certain position, that is going to be aggravated. Imagine that COVID just reduces the, your threshold to become symptomatic. More or less, everybody has some spine problem, except you are 15 years old and very healthy. By the time you are our age, everybody has some uh, spine problem. Now, COVID reset that threshold that the problem becomes symptomatic. So the presentation is probably very different in every person, but one general common uh, the threat here is that you have this general malaise and muscle ache that is just aggravated with certain motion. Okay. Does, is there like a timeline, like how long that lasts? Is it typically just while people have COVID and they're kind of active? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure you have had a cold, right? Yeah, I actually had COVID too. Yeah, no, but even a simple common cold. Mm -hmm. When you have a simple common cold, it takes about three to four days. Um, and for the COVID probably is a little longer, now maybe four to five days to become fully symptomatic. And as a matter of fact, one of the first symptoms you notice is not the typical common cold notice. It's just that you notice you're just tired. Mm -hmm. Even before the full development of the COVID symptoms are noticed, and that general uh, uh, muscle ache and malaise and being tired is something that usually uh, after a few days you notice. Um, every uh, viral infection has a different kind of incubation, we call it. So, but generally the general malaise and muscle ache comes about a day or two before the full pictures are developed. On the other side as well, they are going to last longer than actual COVID symptom. That is like when you have a cold, the, the cold is gone, but it takes you a few more days before you are fully functional. For some reason, your body wants you to just uh, take care of yourself, not do too much. So we still can recover from an acute phase of an infection. Right. And this is, I think it's important to note, like Bob even kind of wrote it in the notes here, like Dr. Stuart McGill is saying like, you know, some people when they get sick and they're hospitalized or they're bedridden, they're going to get back pain from being immobile. But this is not like this because you're saying the virus itself is kind of bringing on pains or problems you might already have, right? Yeah, and it, it's a combination, you know, obviously, if you're immobile, uh, uh, that you and you have already problem, I mean, if you have no problem whatsoever, a few days of not being mobile wouldn't really change anything. But yeah. imagine if you already have a problem that they, it just put the problem over the top for you. 
Right. So how does um, Inspired Spine, for people that are listening and haven't heard Dr. Bossi before, that's where you work out of, um, how have they approached back pain in COVID-19? Well, you know, that's actually an extremely important question. And it has not directly to do with the viral infection. Obviously, you know, a viral infection of the COVID is an infection that has its phases and it's serious. And if you're elderly in certain situations, it can be deadly. But more than that is that uh, the number of the patients that are getting that has truly in the last two years overwhelmed our hospital system, our healthcare system. Now, what is obviously what we do in a situation like that when we are, our resources are not enough, we stop doing regular surgeries. We stop taking care of routine uh, problems. And that is routine problems in the last two years have now accumulated to a point that there are lots of people <clears throat> that their problems have not been addressed. Now, the one question is, you know, why can we not take care of routine spine problem with COVID? Because these patients stay in the hospital for a whole week. They need a lots of resources that we don't have. And uh, obviously if somebody needs a ventilator and has a COVID and need treatment, we are not going to schedule any surgery who would need the same kind of care. Now, the good news is that the way we do the surgery, many of our surgeries are day surgery. Like the time that most of the spine system were shutting down because hospital for good reason wouldn't let us do routine surgery we could do those surgeries in a surgery center. As a matter of fact, this is public data that after regular fusion surgery, that is the, what we do. I mean, the average patients stay in the hospital four to five days. In, that this is public information. The state of Minnesota put those numbers out. Our patient in average stay 1.6 days. So almost one third of the open surgery, but as well is about uh, regarding the patient-centric care, imagine you have a spine surgery and you have to stay five days in the hospital. The chance that you would uh, get COVID from somebody else in that hospital, but let's be clear, those very severe COVID cases will go to hospitals and doctors, doctor, nurses, staff, inadvertently going to spread those uh, uh, agents around, those COVID viruses around, if you are in the hospital for five days, you are much more likely to contract COVID in the hospital than if you are only one day or not at all in the hospital. The way we address that is that obviously we make sure that you don't have an actual respiratory issue because if you have an actual respiratory issue, your back problem have to take the back seat. But if you don't have any actual respiratory issue, we still perform surgery in the COVID time for because our patient don't go to don't have to go to the hospital, and if they have to go to the hospital, stay there the shortest possible. So contrary to other spine services, we still are able to help our patient. If a person no longer tests positive for COVID nineteen but is presenting with back pain yet, um, do you feel comfortable proceeding with surgery? Absolutely, absolutely no. Like uh, any other uh, kind of viral disease, COVID has its phases. Once you're uh, out of the acu acute phase, people recover from that. And to my best knowledge, 
at least for the strain of COVID they had, they actually acquired some immunity. So having said that, it's no different than having any other viral infection. Once you're over the uh, acute episode and respiratory wise you're stable, there is no reason not to take care of patients' other medical problem. Right. Well, that's good to hear then. Um, I guess the last question on this topic, are there any other challenges that back pain related to COVID-19 present for people? Yeah, you know, the, absolutely. And again, it's not a direct relationship between COVID and the virus. It's about that this patient for two years haven't gotten any uh, treatment for their spine. Many of these patients have been put on back burner. Like right now, we have like over 280 uh, uh, backlog for our surgery. People who Jeez. do need a surgery, but we cannot provide them with that offer. Now, you can imagine that, that if you have already a spine problem and it's not taken care of, just two years past, you're not better, you're worse. Yeah, so, it's gonna be worse. Absolutely, these patients, are, and it is not just worse for your spine because you're a young man. It, for you, is not as acute and important like somebody who is my age or 60 or 70. A 70-year-old person who doesn't walk because he has back pain, they decondition so fast. As a matter yeah. of fact, if you are 80 years old and you don't walk for whatever reason, your prognosis is poorer than if you get diagnosed with cancer. If by the time you know, an elderly uh, stop walking for whatever reason, they, they, uh, their cardiovascular system, the heart, lung, they decondition pretty fast. And now two years later, they're two years older, but they, they aged five years, not two years, because they couldn't walk. Now the back problem is worse and it needs more surgery, bigger, because it's a bigger problem. And now you're doing a bigger surgery on somebody who aged five years in two years because right. he wasn't really ambulating and deconditioned. So yeah, these are huge challenges added to our healthcare system. But again, you have to take care of those patients as soon as we safely can because postponing it indefinitely, it's just going to be backfire on us. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about because working in therapy realm, we've seen people like that and they will just, as soon as they stop yeah. walking, decrease. If you can't get those problems fixed early on, I mean, it's a downward spiral. So now, lots of people don't know that uh, if you are an elderly and 80 and above, if you quit completely walking for whatever reason, your life expectancy is about six months. Yeah, I mean, it significantly because drops. You decondition and your heart shut down. This is a deadly disease. We have to understand that. All right, uh, we're going to switch topics now to discuss one of your spinal procedures called OLLIF. Do you just say it like that or do you call it OLIF? <laughs> we call it OLIF, but OLLIF is the official title of that. The, okay. the abbreviation stands for oblique lateral posterior lumbar interbody fusion or OLLIF. There right. is another procedure, it's called OLIF, oblique lateral interbody fusion, 
dash ATP anterior to psoas, and that surgery is done through the belly. Our OLF, OLLIF, we don't have to open up the belly. We go all from between the border between the belly and the back. And these are just anatomical description about how we get access to the lumbar spine. Right. And if people are more interested in that part, we did a podcast with you previously where you really discussed the differences yes. in those. But for this portion, we're going to kind of compare the OLLIF type of surgery to the uh, traditional type of back surgery. So absolutely. I guess the first question is how does OLLIF vary with the muscular cutting and reattachment compared to traditional back surgeries? Yeah, that is actually the core of the difference, you know, um, for um, obvious reasons, spine is in the middle of our body because it has to hold up straight up. And, uh, the, but that means to get to it from any direction, you have to go through a lot of adjacent tissue. And that is the bad part of the spine surgery as general. There is a saying in spine that they, we say, spine surgery begets spine surgery. So meaning if you add one, you will need more. Part of that is that the, by the time we do the first surgery, we cause so much damage, we make a weak spine even weaker by literally in an open old fashioned surgery, detaching all the muscles, you know? Uh, do you play sport? Do you do any kind of sport? Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to play football. Yeah, I used to play football and I distance run now, but. Yeah. If you don't have functioning yeah. muscles. Imagine yeah, you're, not you're gonna... a foot, you play football. You're not going to have any football. Now imagine now you go to your doctor, he do a does surgery on your knee. To get to the knee, he had to cut the tendon, but at the end of the surgery, he decides he's not going to reattach those tendons. Your knee will become physiologically not functional. So you can say goodbye to your football. Yeah, I mean this is you... exactly what you do in the spine surgery. In the right. spine surgery, we cut the muscle, we cut the tendon, but we do not reattach them back. If you, anybody, any surgeon like me, and as a matter of fact, this is a secret of the spine surgeon that we don't tell our patient often, that in a regular spine surgery, we cut the tendons, we cut the muscle, but we do not reattach them back. If we ever have to go back, we see it, we know it, it turned into scar. They're not muscle anymore, they're scar. But for a long time, we didn't have any other option. So the, the options were um, uh, letting the patient be in horrible pain or destroying all the physiology of the spine and turning it into a scar. So uh, reluctantly, we took the less of the evil by performing the surgery. And for that reason, we have been very restrictive to offer this kind of surgery to patients because we know all the, the side effects, all the, the other damages that it can cause. But having said that, by avoiding cutting the muscle, we have brought the spine surgery to a next level. And that's what OLLIF um, does perform and achieve the good part of the result of the surgery without all the collateral damage, which is cutting the muscle. Right. So how does recovery time and restrictions vary with the OLF type procedure? Uh, and that is, I think, I think that's been a crown uh, achievement of OLF. 
like the, uh, considering that many of these surgeries has been a seven day hospital stay and now we do them and patient go home same day is because patient can walk so much faster. They can achieve being independent so much faster. I'm talking about the truck driver and farmers who are practically, if you would have told me 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that something like that is possible, that the farmer within weeks after a spinal fusion goes back to work, I would have not believed that. But now this is the crown achievement of the OLIF that by not causing too much collateral damage, patient walk within one to two hours. Usually after open surgery, it takes them a day or two or three to walk. Right. Patient go home. 96% of the patient go home within the first 24 hours of the surgery. After open surgery, less than 5% of the patient walk within the first two days. Whereas our patient, 96% of them walk within the first day. After open surgery, about four to seven days hospital staff. After our surgery, usually an average 1.6 days and as well return to work. Most of our patients, if they do desk job, after two to four weeks are back to go to their desk job. If they do a physically demanding job, it's going to take longer. But in either way, open surgery is three to four times longer for the patient to achieve the same kind of benchmarks, be able to do the same activities. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is just like, light years ahead of what it used to be in recovery time. I mean, obviously people that haven't had back surgery don't realize it, but working in, you know, therapy, if I worked with someone at your surgery, it'd be a lot easier than the traditional style. So when we're comparing the two true traditional and OLIF, which has more of an increased risk of nerve damage? Yeah. Now, uh, any kind of surgery that you perform has uh, risks involved in that, including nerve damage, uh, risk of infection. Let's talk about all risk of any kind of surgery on the spine with the most common one, infection. A regular surgery has three to 5% risk of infection. Three to 5% meaning one in 20 almost. And if you have seen one of those infections, they can be deadly. Yeah. Our surgery has 0.2% risk of infection. As a matter of fact, not a single patient of ours has to be taken back to surgery for infection. In a regular surgery, we are very close to the, uh, to the tough membrane around the, the spinal cord. We call that dura. A regular surgery has about 8.7% risk of that practically the skin or the membrane get damaged. And then that is a part of much bigger problem that there is a hole in the spinal cord or the area where the spinal cord is uh, covered. Our surgery has zero risk of that. Then other risk of uh, obviously uh, is bleeding that would require uh, transfusion. In a regular surgery, depending on kind of the surgery, but in general, about 20 to 35% of the patient need blood transfusion. In our surgery, practically in all our regular surgery, not a single patient needed blood transfusion. Only one patient who had a liver disease was coagulopathic needed blood transfusion, but that's such a rare event. So we went from 20 to 30% to almost zero need for blood transfusion to a point that uh, I just treated a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness, as you may know, 
they uh, often, because of their faith, they decide not to have blood transfusion. And for that reason, many of these patients, even with horrendous spine problem, are rejected by spine surgeon because they clearly know that uh, without blood transfusion, the surgery cannot be done safely because they lose a lot of blood in open old fashioned surgery. We lose like half a, half a cup or a quarter of a cup of coffee blood, which everybody can tolerate. So many of these Jehovah's Witnesses come to us because we can take care of them with us. They don't have to decide between their faith and their health. Right. I mean, you're how big are like your incisions if you were just to hold your fingers up for the camera? Yeah, no, in an open surgery, uh, the incision in the spine can be like my my hand. Mm-hmm. In my surgery, we do multiple incisions, but each of them are the size of my fingernail. Oh, yeah, they're tiny. So, yeah, obviously, yeah, that's going to lead to a lot less blood loss. Absolutely, absolutely. And as well, under the skin, when we don't cut the muscle, we have less, less blood uh, now, regarding the nerve root irritation and the nerve injury, in a, I have a good picture and I can show it to you or I can send it to you. You can include it in this. Right. I could put okay. it over top if you want to send it to me. Our spinal cord is like a tube coming from our brain down. At each level, there are two nerves on each side going out. All right. So in any regular surgery, we have to push on the spinal cord and the nerve root, because that's the way to get in. As a matter of fact, the standard of treatment, what we call transforaminal lumbar interbody fusion or TLF, the definition is you cut the bone and you go just between the spinal cord and the nerve root that comes out in that corner. We call it axilla of a nerve root. We go in and so we put both spinal cord and the nerve root at danger. In our surgery, we don't even come close to the spinal cord. By the way, you remember we talked about the risk of nicking the spinal cord, which yep. is what open surgery, 8.7%. Ours is zero because we are not even close to the spinal cord, but we have to push the regular nerve that comes out to the side. So whereas open surgery put them both at danger, our surgery puts has a risk of only irritating the nerve root. We looked at that systematically in the study that we published, the risk of nerve irritation for open old-fashioned surgery was 12.7%. Our risk of nerve was about 85 or 8.6%, so 50% less. But it makes a huge difference because people with open surgery, the next day after the surgery, they're so miserable, they don't care that the leg is a little numb or more numb. If they don't have the pain, they're happy. Our patients are ready to go home. So they say, you know, I feel great, but you know, you know, I have a little numbness here. What's that about? So it appears psychologically more, but once we looked at that in uh, systematically, scientifically, actually the risk of nerve irritation is less with us. Now in literature, the permanent risk of nerve damage after open surgery has been reported there are lots of papers out there, but it's reported the highest 35% to the very, very lowest on a handful of cases, 0.3%. But the reality is if you have 35% and if you have 0.3%, the reality is that it is somewhere between. 35% is maybe too high, 0.3% is maybe too low. The reality is that 
that risk is probably around 10 to 12%. In our surgery, initially we have as well about uh, somewhere between 10% irritation, but then after a year in our study, only one patient in 303 has still meaningful symptom, meaning our risk of nerve damage is 0.3%, which is the lowest. So a very small fraction of the open surgery based on the data we have available now. Right. I, I caught most of that. We were glitching a little again, but it should, okay. it should, it should be good. Okay. Um, so do you guys have your own type of protocol at Inspired Spine that you run through people? And does some of this um, protocol prevent you guys from actually needing to do surgery on people? Absolutely. Our goal is to take care of the patient. And we have a saying in, we have few, few doctrine in the Inspired Spine. Our first doctrine is that we take care of everybody. Now, many spine surgeons and many spine services when it becomes a difficult situation, they do the right thing for the practice and just don't deal with difficult situation. Our take on that is we take care of everybody and anybody. This is our first doctrine. So even if you have been part of medication or drug dependent, even if your situation is very hard, even if you are elderly, we take care of everybody. This is our first doctrine. This is our second doctrine is that if we can help anybody without the surgery, we will not do surgery. What that means is that we have extensive protocols. When the patient comes to us, we run them through specialized protocols to see if there is any chance we can help them without the surgery. As a matter of fact, many of the, the patients, even now, is that they run them through our protocols they wouldn't even qualify for surgery in our service. We still let them do some other treatments. Some get better, some don't, but then we do the surgery. So we have extensive protocols to help. Anybody can be helped without the surgery and to try to avoid the surgery. We call that multidimensional. There is something that it's we track and it can be tracked easily is about how many patients you see in the office? How many surgeries you do? We call that clinic to OR ratio. That number generally is between 12 to 15%. Ours is 8%. We perform less than most of other services, spine surgery based on the patient we see now. Having said that, we are not delaying the care. If somebody needs surgery, we do the surgery. But if there is a chance that patient can be helped without the surgery, we take that first. Right. And that's kind of uncommon for surgeons. I mean, most people think surgeons want to just give you surgery to fix your problems. So this is something newer, I would say. No, I, and I, unfortunately, you're right. You know, I, I, I wish that, uh, you know, that uh, we surgeon, uh, but, you know, we are like hammer. We see everything as a nail. And that is our problem. But having said that, I have almost in every time, every clinic, I have a patient who tells me, you know what? The other doctor looked at me five minutes, said you need the surgery, I walked out, and you're telling me you want to try other things. Thank you for not just 
seeing me for five minutes and writing me up for surgery. Patients do appreciate that. Patients are smarter and better informed than ever. They have the tools to go and look you up, look at your results, listen to other patients. And that's what I tell our patient. You, there's so much information you can get on your surgeon. Get to know your surgeon. Right. Yeah. It's more common nowadays just to look stuff up before you go through with surgeries. Absolutely. I guess, I guess my last question about the Olaf surgery is how much time on average would you say the surgery actually takes with this compared to traditional back surgery? And the, the answer to that, I want to use an analogy because that makes people understand that. Because when I self say that I spent the surgery, I did the surgery in 40 minutes, same surgery that another surgeon needs four or five hours, they cannot wrap their head around it. They say, you must be cutting corners or you must be speeding it up. Nothing could be further, further from the truth. Like imagine when you drive from here, from where you are to Chicago, I would oh. say that's probably six, seven hour drive. Is that about right? Yeah, probably roughly. Yeah, roughly six, seven hours. Now imagine if you don't know airplane exists, if driving is all you know, and somebody tells you he got from you to Chicago in one hour, you would think he's lying or he's a very bad driver. He's a reckless driver, correct? Right. But if you know the driving versus flying, you know, it's normal to drive from your place to Chicago in seven hours, but it's as well normal in your place to fly from your place to Chicago in one hour. It's all about all the time that you don't spend in cutting the muscle and stop the bleeding, literally cooking the tissue, makes the surgery so much faster. But all of that reflects as well in patient's outcome. Like in that all the five, six hours that regular surgery is being done, we literally, uh, are cutting the muscle, stopping the bleeding, cooking the tissue, patient is laying on their chest. This data is undisputable. Every additional 30 minutes on the anesthesia adds 17% to the combined risk of the surgery. So by us making a five, six hour surgery, a one hour surgery is tremendously uh, less risky to the patient. And that's why we can do this surgery on elderly. Nobody else can. Right. All right. Well, I think we'll transition into our last category here. So this is kind of talking about what people should look for when they go to find a back surgeon, because not everyone can go to an inspired spine location, even though I did look on your site and you guys have a lot of different places now. Don't yeah. You? And, we are, and we are expanding, you know, the surgeon and the patients are understanding more than ever what the value of this kind of services. We are building now centers in Texas, in uh, California, in Florida, in, uh, in uh, many different states. And as well, lots of doctors are coming and learning this technique from us. So we are expanding very rapidly. But the, uh, if your question is what to look for your spine surgeon, I think the common sense uh, is the best you can have. Research your surgeon. Go Google them, you know, find out uh, if, they, if they put their results out there, if they're open about the results. Once you see them, 
ask them questions that matters, like how long have you been doing these procedures? This is a legitimate question. How many of these procedures have you done? Do you do as well other procedures? Like, do you do this procedure? Do you recommend this procedure for me? Because that's the only way you know how to do the surgery. Or can you do five different surgery and you're doing it for me because in your opinion, that's best for me. Listen, if they have like patient testimonial out there, listen to them. And I'm talking about like, if you go and like put in YouTube, all of testimonial, you get thousands of patient testimonial online there. But as well, I think it's a, it's always between the surgeon and the doctor and the patient. It's a personal relationship. Make sure you feel comfortable. Right. So if, I know we talked about this, but it'll be in a different video. But if someone like decided to travel to an inspired spine location to have surgery, how long do you think they would have to be there for like location wise before they can travel home? Yeah. Well, this is a question I can answer you based on the actual patient. Master, I, we get every week somebody who's driving or flying from all around the country to us for the surgery. The vast majority of the cases, after a day or two, they're ready to go, but we prefer to keep them at least three, four days. They don't have to stay in the hospital. We do the surgery, they go out of surgery center or hospital in the first day or the same day as the surgery or next day. But it's probably a good idea to stay around and uh, don't do anything excessive. And it's not about the flying back part that I'm concerned about, but imagine when you have been flying for yourself, you get late for the flight, you have to pull, you forget about everything, you have to carry luggage and so on. All of those are additional stress that we prefer for, for our patient not to have in the first few days after the surgery. Right. So does Inspired Spine, um, what do you guys do when you bring someone in kind of like, what's your protocol or how do you examine them exactly that's different? Yeah, well, first of all, um, this is a secret of the spine surgeon and we all know that we don't advertise that. Now you get all my secrets. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the type of the surgery you get or treatment for your spine you get has less to do with what kind of problem you have. It has more to do who is the first person you meet. Like if you meet a chiropractor or interventionalist or pain specialist, or surgeon who's uh, uh, specialized in minimal invasive versus open, the kind of knowledge they have is the more deterministic about what kind of treatment you get rather than the kind of problem you have. I can give you an analogy on that. Imagine you go with your car to car dealership, but the car dealership is not the same. You know, you can have a pain, people who do, do paint job, people who do uh, you know, electricity work, people who do you know, other things like, uh, like you, they, they do your carburetor. Imagine it's random to whom you get. And if you get to the electricity guy, he fixed the electricity for you. If you get to the carburetor guy, uh, same problem. You have the same problem, but depending on who you get to, different part of the problem get fixed rather than the problem itself. This is how spine is now in 2022. If, if you get to interventionalists, you, you are more likely to get for years 
injection rather than fix your spine. And if you get to a spine surgeon that who is open surgeon, you may get a three-level open spinal fusion rather than an injection, which could have fixed your problem or physical therapy who could have fixed your problem. And that is what we have changed. We have made a protocol, literally patient come, your checklist that they we have to check, like if certain symptoms are not there, they don't even have to see the spine surgeon. They go to interventionalists, to physical therapists. And, but if there are certain areas are checked, they cannot be limited to just exercises. They have to see a spine surgeon if certain criteria are achieved. And those criteria are common sense criteria on the spine side that if you have an unstable spine, spine specialist, spine surgeon should look at it. So we have unified this kind of approach to help the patient to get the care they need, not the care that accidentally the provider has in his pocket to offer. Right. And, uh, and these protocols, we call them multidimensional protocol. We bring providers in, we train them on that to unify the kind of care we give to our patients. So your guys' protocol you created, you know, isn't conventional in your mainstream hospital. How could like mainstream hospitals try and incorporate that? Yeah, no, the, the, not, there is another saying in by, among the spine surgeon is that if you give the same problem, one case to five spine surgeon, you come back with seven different opinions. Right. So spine care is not unified. It can be different in one hospital versus another, with one surgeon versus another. And this cares, um, you know, contrary, like, you know, if you have a cardiac arrest or if you have a heart problem, those problem has been unified very clearly, but not spine. Now, um, well, I think our advantage here is that we can unify this and we are spreading this knowledge to the, all the hospitals we are working with is that um, we bring all the specialists on board. Like in our group where we create those protocols, we have uh, physical therapists, chiropractors, interventionalists, radiologists. And by bringing everybody on board, we are creating a protocol that's acceptable to all providers rather than just to surgeon. Right. And I think that is why we can attract lots of attention to what we do. Whereas radiologists create their own uh, protocol, but nobody else cares about that. And the spine surgeon, they have their own protocol, but the interventionalists, physical therapists don't believe that, don't trust in that because they don't even know it. By bringing everybody to the same table and try to create a protocol that is a child is a brain child of all of the providers, then you can truly create a, a protocol that is can be followed by all providers. And that is what we do. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think I went a little beyond your question. <laughs> no, it was a good answer. No, I was just wondering, because yeah, I mean, I would say most conventional places, yeah, everything's kind of separated and a little your, um inspired spine, you're all kind of on the same game plan, yeah. uh, no matter who the provider is, what their field of expertise is, so. No, I want you to uh, you know, give you an analogy. 
like you just mentioned the word spine specialist or spine surgery. That means so much different, even in two hospitals next to each other. And patient believe, think it's the same. It is not. Whereas if I tell you I had a Diet Coke, you know for sure that Diet Coke, what it is, you had it. It's the same Diet Coke. You can trust it. Like if you go to Africa, I would drink Diet Coke anywhere in Africa or anywhere else because I know it's, it is what I expect it to be. Independent from value, I know it is what it is, the Diet Coke. Whereas spine surgery, I may think apple, you may think orange juice. And somebody else, for somebody else is the sewage uh, it is not the same. It is so far apart. It is not unified. This is what we are trying to do. That if we tell our patient, you need this treatment versus that treatment, if you have this condition versus that condition, that they can trust us. We are trying to create a brand that patient can trust uh, with their spine problem. Right. So I just got one more question here, I think, from the Bob questions he provided us that we haven't gotten to. How do you decide if someone may need back surgery, but not to the extent of a spinal fusion? Um, the, I, I compare a disc to a tire of a car. Like literally a tire cushion the car against the road. Yep. And a disc cushion two bone against each other. Now, um, do you always have to replace your tire? No. Sometimes you just have to put more air in it. Sometimes you have to patch it. Sometimes you need to change the valve. What you need to do with your tire of a car is very similar to what you do to the spine. Fusion is only one of the treatment that the spine needs. As a matter of fact, we are hoping that most of our patients don't need any intervention at all. But sometimes if they need their like there's a piece of one small piece of the disc is pushing on nerve and the patient have more leg pain than anything else. We don't do a fusion at all. We, what we do, we go do a, what we call la, foraminotomy, microdiscectomy, laminotomy. These are different procedures that tells we are cutting very small incision as well size of my nail. And then we go with the tube that is about half an inch to an inch. And then we trip there, whatever pushes on the nerve. That's not a fusion at all. And we do many of those procedures. But imagine you have a tire that has 55 holes. Are you going to patch that tire with 55 holes? No. No, you won't. Neither do we for spine. If that disc is beyond repair, the only feasible, reasonable way to treat that is get rid of that disc completely. And that's what we do. And that would be a fusion. All right. Well, I think that gets everything we have for questions here. Do you have any last comments or remarks you would like to add about anything? No, thank you so much. All right. And that concludes today's podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I apologize. We had some lagging internet issues. So hopefully I am able to fix it up enough so it is tolerable to listen to. Make sure to come back next time for more interviews with experts on the Bob and Brad podcast. 